everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio. I'm Andrew Kornblatt. And I'm Samantha Wishnack. Welcome to the fourth episode in our series on ocean reproduction, titled Ocean Lovin'. And here to explain our next episode is our special co-host from the podcast Strictly Fish Wrap Science Radio Hour, Skylar Bayer. Thanks, Samantha. Spring is finally in the air, and so is romance, even among plants both on land and in the sea. Plants? In the sea? Yeah, while plants and trees are opening their flowers and releasing their pollen, organisms that also capture energy from the sun and look very much like plants, algae, are reproducing in many ways, most of which we still understand very little about. First to tell us about it is Susan Brawley. I'm Susan Brawley. I'm a professor in the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine. And also her former student, Jessica Mullen, who did her PhD in Susan's lab. My name is Jesse Mullen, and I'm an associate professor of marine biology at Maine Maritime Academy in Castine, Maine. Hey, that's my neck of the woods. Susan Brawley's lab at the University of Maine specializes in the study of marine algae. Well, Jessica, how do algae reproduce? In many different ways. (laughs) It's too hard to group all algae together because they span so many different divisions across the tree of life. So you've got brown algaes, green algaes, red algaes. Some are unicellular, and those are what we commonly think of as phytoplankton. Then some are really big, structurally complex macrophytes, and that's what we think of as seaweed, like kelp or rockweed. As a side note, we want to make sure our listeners are aware that when anyone on this show refers to brown algae as plants, they're using slang. Brown algae are not plants. They are photosynthetic straminopiles, and not phylogenetically, and in many other ways, plants. I think for today, we'll focus on rockweeds, a group of brown algae that the Brawley Lab has studied the reproduction of very closely for a couple of decades now. This group has species that have separate male and female individuals, but other species are hermaphrodites. Rockweed? What the hell are rockweeds? The rockweeds are properly called fucoid algae. They occur in cold, temperate regions of the world. They are different species in the northern hemisphere from the southern hemisphere, but these algae are found in both places. Fucoids are what's known as a foundational species. Entire habitats form around them. Basically, they are like edible housing, as appetizing as that sounds. Not only do they create habitat, in a real sense they are the intertidal ecosystem for a lot of marine animals. These species are very important to the marine intertidal zone. They provide shelter at low tide against the heat and dry air from the sun. Yes, it's true. Rockweeds aren't just for throwing at your friends at the beach. So what does the species Jessica works on look like? This particular um, species is Fucus vesiculosus. It's one of the most dominant brown macroalgae on rocky intertidal coasts. It's the one that has paired air bladders, so sometimes people like to pop the air bladders on the seaweed. And if you pop the air bladders along the the body of the, the individual on the phallus, those are the air bladders. And if you try to pop the bladders at the tips of a fucus vesiculosus, well... Yes? I'll just let Jesse explain. They're actually swollen reproductive organs on the tips. They're then just squishing eggs and sperm. <laughs> kind of looks like swollen parts of the, the individual. And people often think that those are air bladders and they'll pop them. They're full of mucilage. And if it's if it's an egg, an egg-bearing female, those eggs will be kind of olive green. And if it's a male, those sperm are going to be bright orange and they'll stain your hands like tang. 
often I'll have students who will say, like, when I'm on the beach, I like to smear that mucilage all over my face, and they never really think that it's the reproductive part of the plant that they're just kind of making into a facial tonic. <laughs> New moisturizing face cream, now with more gametes. Very hydrating. <laughs> so what happens to those eggs and sperm? In terms of how they reproduce... The species of fucus has male individuals that produce sperm and female individuals that produce eggs. Under certain conditions, they are released into the water and the sperm and eggs meet there and the eggs are fertilized. This is called external fertilization. External fertilization is a common practice analogy and can leave a lot to chance. Sperm and egg aren't usually guaranteed to meet in the ocean. They can easily get washed away by strong currents and spread out quickly from turbulent waters. But Fucus vesiculosis is very, very good at what it does. We found by going out in nature and collecting gametes and what turned out to be fertilized eggs, that the fertilization success was virtually 100% in different habitats, meaning open coastal, highly exposed to more protected estuaries. Just every situation we looked at, fertilization success was 100%. This, of course, flew in the face of some of the other scientists working in this area uh, recently. So we decided that we would find out what the mechanism was. Wait, literally every single egg was fertilized? Almost. Can you imagine how many baby algae or zygotes that is? For each individual fucus, they have on the order of hundreds of receptacles, which are the reproductive parts. And inside each of those receptacles, there are what are called conceptacles, or like kind of flask-shaped pockets inside the receptacle that holds then packets of eggs that are grouped in eight or packets of sperm grouped in 64. So there's you know, millions upon billions of eggs or sperm packed into each individual alga. If you think about like those millions and billions of eggs that are released, every single egg, uh, which you can see with your naked eye, they're about 80 microns in size, gets fertilized. The ability of an algae that has no brain or nervous system to time the release of sperm and egg to get 100% fertilization is fascinating. Even though researchers have been studying the species for over 100 years, the Brawley lab was the first to figure out how they reproduce so successfully. First of all, the sperm are negatively phototactic, so they swim away from the surface of the water, and the eggs secrete a chemical pheromone that attracts the sperm. Pheromone secretion in eggs has been observed in many animals in the ocean, not just algae. As the egg moves through the water, the pheromones leave a trail that hopefully some nearby sperm, and I mean really nearby, like a few hundred microns, can follow to the egg. The adults also play a huge role in this simply by responding to the environment. We found, first of all, that light is one of the things that can control release of gametes. But we also found that the adults are exquisitely sensitive to water motion. And that is really exciting because it means that the adults have evolved 
to be adapted to environments in which you would think that when gametes are released, they are diluted instantly so that fertilization success would be very low. Instead, we found that the adults have co-opted photosynthetic metabolism to be able to tell whether it is calm or very stormy and turbulent, and they only release their gametes under calm conditions. And they have a pretty neat mechanism to determine calm conditions. Plants on land use sunlight and carbon dioxide from the air to grow, creating new structures like limbs or reproductive organs. Algae in the water use bicarbonate, which is the dissolved form of carbon dioxide. When water is moving frequently past an algae plant, bicarbonate is constantly being pushed against the algae surface, and it can sense this. When the water becomes very still and calm, a boundary layer, which is essentially a stationary fluid, surrounds alga and becomes very thick. This doesn't allow for much bicarbonate to reach the surface of the alga after it's already used up the available bicarbonate. And if you can just imagine yourself as a marine macrophyte, about a meter tall, hanging out in the intertidal zone covered by water, under these rare, very calm days, the water is not being stirred very much around you. And so a boundary layer begins to develop in which bicarbonate becomes limiting at the surface of the adult to take up to carry on photosynthesis. And it's that trigger, that no more bicarbonate available immediately, that allows for there to be that expulsion of eggs and sperm. As Jessica found during her PhD, the conditions that trigger this act are very, very specific, down to an optimal wind speed. The Goldilocks, or ideal conditions of water motion and sunlight, are rarely seen because of their timing during the day and they often occur during the early spring. In the Gulf of Maine, bladder rack is reproducing every two weeks during the spring tides, from late August through December, and sometimes even into spring if winter wasn't too harsh. It takes place often during slack high tide, so it's one of those amazing natural events that pretty much no one sees because most people don't go to the intertidal zone during high tide. So I think about it as like fireworks in the ocean that are often pretty much never captured by um, people who go to the intertidal zone because they're not there at the right time. One of the reasons why seaweeds like bladder rack may invest so heavily into having 100% fertilized eggs is that all those zygotes that are made, only a small fraction of them may survive. They have to find the perfect crevice during calm conditions to survive and grow into an adult alga someday. Well, we got to know bladder rack really well. Do we know anything else about sex in other rockweed species? Yes, there's one species that's actually called rockweed, or knotted rack, or egg rack, Ascophyllum nidosum. And here to talk about it is Clay. My name's Clay Steele. Uh, I'm currently a master's student in the Fish Ecology and Conservation Physiology Lab at Carleton University in Ottawa. However, a year ago, I was doing my undergraduate honors at Mount Allison University in the Marine Botany Lab there, and that was when I studied uh, the seaweed reproduction that we're going to talk about. Ascophyllum is one of the most abundant species of seaweed all across the western and eastern North Atlantic, along the coasts of Europe, and found in New Brunswick, Canada, and Maine. Maine for the win! Ascophyllum has evolved a lot of unpalatability as a defense against grazers. 
basically making itself taste bad so it won't get eaten. Which is one of the reasons it seems to be more important as habitat instead of a food source. It also sheds its skin regularly to get rid of epiphytes and ectoparasites regularly. Wait, wait, seaweed can molt like a crab? This was a recent discovery, and because of how much biomass Ascophyllum makes up in the inner tidal, the skin shedding may be very important to coastal nutrient sources. Turns out individual fronds of a rockweed plant can be 9 to 10 feet in length, weighing upwards of 20 pounds, especially during the reproductive season. And just like bladder rack, it is the ecosystem for many marine organisms. And it's also harvested pretty regularly and used as a food additive, medicinal supplement, fertilizer, and livestock feed. One of the things that struck me in studying this species was that despite its commonness and its significance to humans, it's harvested for use in industry and agriculture. It has compounds in its tissues that are useful in that regard. It's, it's significant to humans and to the native ecosystem. There's a lot we don't know about its reproduction, or it hasn't been studied in as much detail as you'd expect. Just like bladderwrack, it invests in millions, if not billions, of eggs in individual alga. But unlike bladderwrack, it reproduces for a short window of three to seven weeks in March and April. I'm sure you've seen them. They, uh, they're oh, yeah. sort of like little little yellow balls that grow um, off of its phallus every year, and it could grow thousands of them, or like a single plant can grow thousands of them, and then at the end of the reproductive season, sheds them off, starts growing them next year. So it's a really sort of interesting that a plant invests that much on an impermanent structure. During Clay's research project, where he was looking into if reproduction was different in estuaries versus the open coast, he noticed something odd about the sex ratios. Every paper that I'd read about its reproduction before kind of assumed that they had 50-50 male-to-female ratio. It is a dioecious species. Not all fucoid algae are dioecious, but uh, this is one of them. And anyways, it was just sort of an assumption, and that's sort of a wider assumption in plant reproductive ecology in general, that you should have roughly equal numbers of males and females. I was identifying sex for other reasons, and then I just, after reviewing my data, I was like, holy cow, this, there's some pretty big deviations. You had ratios all the way up to like 5 to 2, 3 to 4, that kind of thing. The sex ratios didn't have any clear correlation with habitat or any clear ecological patterns. There might be some really important reason why the sex ratios are off, but no one knows why yet. Many assumptions about reproduction are often proven wrong as more data is collected, as in the case of the mystery sex ratios. For example, in Ascophyllum, it's assumed that zygotes don't get much farther than 30 meters, or basically 100 feet. This means that populations are expected to be related to pretty much only the ones closest nearby, and not say even populations in the next bay. The Bay of Fundy has the highest tides in the world. Where I was working, it was about a 35-foot difference between high and low tide. So along with that, there's incredibly strong currents that it's hard to imagine anything going less than, you know, 30 meters from any sort of dispersion standpoint. Given Clay's observations in the Bay of Fundy, who knows how far rockweed zygotes travel or if that has anything to do with their odd sex ratios. What we do know is that even the most unassuming of seaweeds have evolved some amazing adaptations to reproduce under difficult circumstances. Be sure to join us next time for an all-new Ocean Ocean Science Science Radio. Fugas, you're a firework. Come on, let your colors burst. Kelp, I need somebody. Kelp, not just anybody. Kelp, you know, I need someone. Kelp. 
We are all sensitive algae with so much to give. So much to give. Understand me if you kiss. Ooh.